You're listening to The Cultured Podcast, a weekly conversation hosted by me, Michelle Corey, that breaks down the barriers surrounding art, theater, travel, and more to serve a digestible dose of culture for all. Hello, my beautiful culture vultures. On this episode of The Cultured Podcast, we are digging at the roots of one-person shows. Today's guest is the incomparable Taylor M. Dooley. She's a dynamic actress who recently starred in a one-woman show called Throw Me on the Burn Pile and Light Me Up. I was lucky enough to be in the audience for that show and was left so stunned by her performance that I knew she needed to come on the podcast and talk to the cultured crew. Taylor has done everything from improv theater to voice acting to dramatic stage plays and even a horror flick. So yeah, we're going to have to dig into that for a second. But of course, before we dive in to Taylor and her majestic acting career, we're going to talk about what's inspiring me this week. And y'all, it is the unbelievable strength and resilience of womanhood. That's right. I said it. Thank you, women. We are finally breaking the silence. In fact, Time Magazine named the person of the year the silence breakers. And for those of you who don't understand or who haven't been through an experience like sexual abuse or sexual harassment or bullying, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to break the silence and to come forward and to speak your truth. And I'm so proud to call myself a woman because we have been through it, y'all, and we continue to go through it across the world. And still we pick ourselves up, we create the species, we nurture the species, and we truck on. And thank you to everyone who has supported women. What's so cool is that we're finally using the tools of communication that Our era provides us to shed light on these underbellies, on these painful shadows that have stayed hidden for far too long. So I want to thank the silence breakers like Tarana Burke, who created the Me Too hashtag, and to every woman who harnesses that warrior, that lioness within her to bring the the world more light. And remember that light doesn't just serve to illuminate, it also serves to eradicate darkness. And we are in a very pivotal time where authenticity, truth, and justice are prevailing. And it's because of these incredibly strong, inspiring women, these courageous souls, and the people who support us and let us do our thing by bringing justice to the world that we're able to overcome. I have a feeling that moving forward, darkness will have nowhere else to hide. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing because this world needs all the love and light it can get. That's what's inspiring me. I hope you are feeling inspired. I hope you do something every day to bring light and love into this world. And if you do, I love you for that. And if you don't, I still love you. You can do it. Bring it. All right, y'all. It's time to talk to the wonderful Taylor Dooley. Hey, Taylor. 
Hey, how's it going? <laughs> My God, what a rich and sensual voice. Let me tell you, I I really appreciate that you started this by saying Taylor M. Dooley because that M is important. As you may or may not know, I do. there is another Taylor Dooley. And when I used to live in L.A., I was you know, I was in my early 20s there, and when people still used to phone, the phone book. And I listed myself and I used to get phone calls from little kids from all over the country. And, you know, I was failing miserably at my career. <laughs> and this little Taylor Dooley, the star of the adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. She uh, was Lava Girl. She, yeah, <laughs> she was Lava Girl. And let me tell you, there was one day, one day when uh, one of my friends was super obsessed with the IMDb star meter. Uh, it basically ranks how popular you are by how many times people visit your page on IMDb. And for uh, about two hours, I was number one. But it's because it's when Twilight came out and Taylor Lautner was, you know, obviously in Twilight and he was also Shark Boy. And for some reason, people are like, well, who is this Taylor Dooley girl? And it came to me. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, but I have one question for you. Is she on the Cultured Podcast? today? Uh, no. no. <laughs> let's let's start real easy here. Okay. How did you get into acting? The first role I ever had was in first grade when we took a field trip to Kennesaw or Stone Mountain and we all got to play parts. And I can't even remember who I played, but there were no more girl parts left. <laughs> so I got to play someone who shot who assassinated somebody. And my line was, I got to step out in full military gear with a shotgun. And I said, take that, you traitor. Because that's how I used to talk when I was a kid. And I shot them and everyone laughed. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, I want more of this. And that's how it started. Did your mom, were you like, oh, at that point I should go into acting? Or no, no, how'd you no, make no. that jump? So I was also a, a big athlete in high school. And and I was going to play softball in college, but I didn't really want to. And I wanted to be an actress. And so naturally, if you want to be an actor, you go to Emory University. <laughs> and my parents, after my second year, I was like, OK, I really want to do acting. And um, I got a scholarship for my last two years. So my parents said, you can study whatever you want. I'm like, all right, then. <laughs> and so I studied theater studies, which is one of the biggest major. Well, at the time, this was a hot minute ago. Mm. But it was a it's a huge major. And it was so amazing. And my professors were amazing. And after that, uh, I decided to move to California and pursue acting or the film and TV stuff. I didn't mm -hmm. do any of that here in Atlanta beforehand. Your voice got hella deeper when you mentioned California. Um, <laughs> no, I let me tell you, I loved L.A. I lived there for six years. But going there just having been in plays and like not knowing anything. Woo. Thank goodness for student films. Really? Why is that? Because you have no idea what you're doing. You're not really well prepared for film and television and, and the differences and just simple basic language on a film set, you know, and, and just learning how to act for camera because I'm larger than life in general. <laughs> I act with my hands and my and I nod my head a lot. And so, you know, just learning to tone it down and um, but, you know, there's a billion classes out there, and I loved I loved living in L.A., and that's how I got into voiceover, too. And then I moved back for a boy who I'm currently married to and had children with. Nice. Oh, and uh, at Emory, I did Rathskeller, which is their uh, college improv troupe, and I continued it in L.A. <laughs> I did a silent improv troupe. It's not mime. I was going to say, it, that it's sounds not mime. a whole lot like a mime troupe. And y'all, it wasn't that good. 
A lot of times, well, he was my boyfriend at the time, but my husband would be sitting in the audience with one other person. Oh, with my a God. seven person silent improv troupe. Oh, my God. You had numbered your audience. Oh, yeah. And we, we wore burgundy dress shirts and black pants. We looked like we were catering something <laughs> silently. Wait, so you didn't wear the face paint? No, because we're not mine. Okay, that's what they all say. <laughs> I was the leader of my mime troupe in high school, okay? And at least I committed to that and wore the paint and wore the unitard. Because we were, it was just so confusing. It just wasn't good. In your opinion, speaking of, you know, we've already touched on a few, uh, diff- what I would name difficult transitions, moving to L.A., mm-hmm. all of a sudden realizing that it's a very different world to act on stage versus on camera. Mm-hmm. We've touched on that a little bit with Adriana Hicks, who is um, currently touring a Sealy on Broadway. And she talks about how... When she tried to do a stage play, it was amazing, but it was such a different experience from musical theater. Hmm. And then break that apart to film. So in your opinion, what is the most challenging aspect of being an actor? There are just so many different things about it. So, you know, a stage play is is being able to stay connected to the material as you do it over and over again. On a film set, it's being able to remember where you've been and where you're supposed to go, especially when you film things out of sequence Mm. and you have a billion distractions around you. Um, And then doing a one-person show, what makes it easy to connect is that if you're doing a direct address to the audience, you have... You know, 50 to 70 castmates every single time you perform. So I I get so much from the audience by actually talking to them directly because they respond, whether it's in their body language or their eye contact, their smiles, their nods, whatever. And sometimes people would talk to me um, and someone tried to grab my leg once. (laughs) Whatever. She was really into it. All of it's different with voice acting. Especially coming from stage, there's a tendency for me to push, you know, like it's so interesting because when times I've worked on voiceover projects and people who are primarily film and TV actors come in to do voiceover, they have a really hard time Mm. uh, expressing themselves. And and at the same time, stage performers have a hard time overdoing it. You know what I mean? You don't need to push as hard as you think you do. So every all of it's different. Right. But it's and it's all trial and error. It's a lot of failing, you know, just terrible, terrible choices made. But, you know, you start to kind of learn your way. How do you feel comfortable enough to fail when it's such a public endeavor? Even, you know, when you're doing film or TV, it's public in the sense of there's like a whole lot of people watching you. Yeah. Um, I don't ever really get used to it. You know what I mean? It's kind of, you know, know, it's like, it's like dealing with grief or something like it never gets better. Someone said this on um, a TV show today or something. You know, the wound never heals. It just softens <laughs> you know so it it never feels good you know what I mean because I yeah. and as much as I love the good reviews if I'm going to give so much weight to good reviews I gotta give equal amount to the bad ones mm-hmm. and some of them are really bad <laughs> they're really really bad I mean it takes a definite resilience of spirit to like look those bad reviews in the face and, or even just spot your own sometimes we're our own worst critic yeah spot your own mistakes and say okay it's cool I, that doesn't mean I completely suck. Yeah. That just means I need to work on that. Yeah. So do you make it a habit to sort of see, watch recordings of yourself on stage or, you know, like I imagine you in like a locker room, like after the big game, you know, like do you replay your plays? 
for the one woman show, we taped it a couple of times so I could watch it just to see what some of my stage habits were, my physicality, things I do with my hands, all kinds of things that I just had no idea I was actually doing, especially, you know, an hour and a half, you know, <laughs> things happen, you know, and so it's very helpful to do that. And with voiceover, so I kept my voiceover agent when I moved back here to Atlanta. So that's when I had to start doing auditions from home. The first time I ever sent off a voiceover audition to my agent in L.A., I, it took me roughly six hours. And it, was, it wasn't even a big audition. I just couldn't handle my voice and everything that was wrong with it. I'm like, God, I sound like a redneck 24 hours a day. But um, so that just takes time, you know, yeah. and especially seeing myself, you know, it's hard because my always my knee jerk reaction is like crooked mouth. <laughs> That's amazing. Crooked I mouth. mean, it's so true. I, you know, doing a podcast, a lot of the podcasters I talk to, everyone has their own thing where it's like, oh, I sound so nasally. Oh, my voice sounds so deep or whatever. And it just really helps to not have any shame and uh, put it out there just yeah. Because I think what separates an artist who's successful versus somebody who doesn't even do their art is the fact that you just do it. You like barrel through the insecurities. You barrel through the fears. And you're like, I'm just going to release this because I need to. Yeah. I commend you for that because it's a very big part of being a successful actor. So we talked a little bit about the difficulties of being an actor and you kind of broke it down by aspect. Um, To you, what's the most rewarding part? Oh, gosh. For the audience members, for me, the doing plays is, is much more intrinsically rewarding, especially dramas, because for a while, for several the last several years, I've stuck to comedies, especially doing stuff at Dad's Garage, uh, where we do these really amazing, fun comedies. And mm-hmm. it's just, we just make people laugh, and people have a really great time, and that's really great, too. But there's something about connecting to an audience member that they get that they're moved, that they come away thinking about things that are going on in their own life, you know, especially when you're dealing with subject matter where you're talking about the other as as opposed to people seeing themselves on stage. They see a story that they're not connected to, but they're and, and being able to see that story and to relate to it and and take a piece out of it. There's to me, that's what makes the world empathetic and creates a lot of compassion. And that's my favorite. Mm. Well said. That was that was beautiful. You recently, like we touched on a couple times, starred in Aurora Theater's production of Throw Me on the Burn Pile and Light Me Up, which was written by the Lucy Alibar, mm-hmm. who co-wrote Beasts of the Southern Wild and was nominated for an Oscar. Um, it, it was it left my jaw on the floor, your performance of it. So I want to dive in to everything about this. But first, can you summarize what this production is about? Uh, It's about a girl's childhood growing up in the South. And uh, uh, when it boils down to it, it's really about her relationship with her dad. And when the script we first got a hold of it. It really is just seven stories. There's no, there wasn't a dramaturg attached to this, so it wasn't really written for the stage. Uh, Lucy performed it as almost like a, I don't know, and I wouldn't say spoken word piece, but, um, and there had been one staging of it the year before, but we didn't see what they did with it. And so we oh, had wow. to create a context around 
why these seven stories are being told. Otherwise, like as an actress, I have to figure out like, what am I doing on stage? Who is the audience? Why why bother telling this story now? And so we had created the context. Well, I say we. <laughs> it's really um, Rachel Parrish. She created it because she's brilliant and amazing in the director. Uh, the context that my dad had just passed away and that I need to write the eulogy and, and, and in thinking about, and this happens a lot when people pass away, floods of memories come in and out. And you don't, at the time, you don't always know necessarily why that particular memory has hit you. Through going through all these memories, I think I need to write the eulogy, but what I really need to do is say goodbye to my dad. And mm. so that piece allows me to do it as every story we punctuated with the lighting of a candle. And people can have different interpretations of what that means, whether it's, you know, throw me on the burn pile, the whole fire metaphor, uh, or just making peace. Uh, so there's different ways to think about that. So that's how we... Uh, approached it in the beginning. I don't even remember what your question was. Yeah, no, that that <clears throat> it was so great. And and you were taking me back to the performance and I just was getting literal chills while you were talking because it, I cannot believe that you guys didn't have much to reference mm -hmm. then because I was going to ask you because I know Lucy performed it, mm -hmm. you know, she wrote it and then performed it. And so you know, I was going to ask you, how did you make that character your own or how did you detach from the potential intimidation of of performing something after the actual writer has performed it? But the truth is it's never actually lived in this form before. Right. Exactly. So and, and there's a lot of creative license with that. And plus, you know, what's interesting is when you are playing people who are real, especially her dad, who is a, was a big character that I played in this in this show, um, I would Google him and I'd see pictures of him. And we at one time had requested to actually listen to him, any audio of him, so I could hear how he, he spoke. And um, her agents were very firm about saying this is a work of fiction, which it's, it's not a work of it's not, you guys. It's real. And it's amazing. It's a, That's why it's so good, because it's real. Ooh. So I, you know, there was always that, you know, looking at how she looked, looking at um, how her dad looked and the way someone who looks like that would have talked. And then I just decided, you know, the heck with it. Use what I know, which is I grew up in the South. I grew up in a really super, super, super small town. I, when we got a traffic light, it was on the front page of the county newspaper. Oh my God. Free home, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Wait, is that the town <clears throat> name? Yes, it's called Free Home, Georgia, which I didn't know was weird until I got to college. Oh, wow. It just never occurred to me that that was an <laughs> interesting name. I wouldn't for... call it weird. I'd call it unique. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Weird has bad connotations. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I was never intimidated by it, only if she came and saw it. That would be difficult if <laughs> she was sitting in the audience. But even so, I really I took really great care of the characters in the show. Like I, I made a point to do that, especially uh, when I see over and over again, even people who are from the South, when they portray Southern characters, it drives me nuts. Because it's a caricature. It's a caricature. And, and yes, there are those people, right? But, the, but those people... If you, some of the characters I played, some of them were monsters. Some mm -hmm. of them were, by every cultural standard, horrible, evil people. Yeah. And in order to play those people effectively, 
And for people to want to continue watching them, they have to have empathy for them. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you cannot play a caricature. You can't rely on these tropes of what Southern characters do. And, yes, there are pieces of that all throughout it. But if people want to connect with it instead of watching this sideshow of Southern life, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Then you have to do a little bit more uh, legwork. A lot more legwork. How many characters did you embody in that one performance? Oh, gosh. It was astounding. I brought in my script, but I didn't bring in my notebook. My notebook, I had a legal pad that was almost completely full with backstories, notes, homework, maps, uh, characters. I want to say for some reason 17 is the number in my head. That might not be true, but for, we're going to stick with it for Let, right let's now. Let's stick with it because I let's think it, it was. It, it was, was a lot. lot. Even if it was just, you know, a line here or there. But um, locations, talking about maps. The locations, there were 50, uh, around 50. And location could be the inside of a truck. Mm -hmm. But I was inside of several trucks. So, I mean, we went through, and as far as the maps, we drew a map of the property. I drew a floor plan. Uh, I drew what my room looked like, uh, the smells, what the burn pile looked like, uh, the inside of the truck, what kind of truck it was. Was it a stick shift? What year was it? Is the radio on? Like all these little details, the gas station that we pull up to, all of these different things, the, the trailer, and then all the different characters, you know, because that stuff, the audience will never know, right? But it helps when you see someone up there, it takes I, I take you with me and you create whatever you want, which is kind of amazing that you get who knows what your version of the stage play actually looked like. You know yeah. what I mean? Every single person in that audience had, saw a different play. And that's so amazing. That's what was so amazing about having a show with no props and no set pieces, really. You know, other than having some places I sat on in the burn pile. Mm -hmm. Um, Which actually really helped. I mean, it was not a bare bones set. Right. It was, I mean, for for the way that you brought it to life bare. But I actually thought the set was done in such a good way because there was... There were chunks of meat, you know, there was like yes. little, little um, hints at what was going on. And what I think is so amazing about art in general, and I've touched on this on past episodes, is the fact that the art takes on a life of its own, but then it also becomes adopted by the audience member, whether it's a painting, a sculpture or a play. And it all hinges around each person's unique context. So I was watching this from the perspective of someone who has lost a father. And I and it just reached me to the core. And I think in those situations, too, when you are so familiar with grief, you can call out the BS in two seconds and you can be like, that's not what grief looks like. Mm So, you know. And there is actually a deeper story here that's bone chilling to me. And it's that you were going through some grief with your father Mm -hmm. during this time. So tell us a little bit about what it was like, what happened and what it was like to go through that. Um, So uh, my dad, I put him in hospice August 7th. And then I started rehearsals for this one person show August 16th. Mm. So my entire run, everything was colored by the fact that my dad was actually dying and that you know there's parts of the script too that's about you know we don't even though we say goodbye to people that there are these little nuggets of them that stay around where it's like the favorite shirt they always wore the music they listened to things like that and um my dad actually passed away on september 28th which was the thursday night Uh, after my Thursday night show, and I had uh, four shows after that. I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. It was the worst. Mm -mm. 
let me just tell you, it's the worst. And you know what's crazy is that I was so connected to the material the whole time, but I was actually nervous when that when it did happen because I was afraid my brain in survival mode would shut off all emotions so I could actually continue doing what I need to do. And it, it was so crazy, the Friday night performance. So this was the, my first performance after my dad had just passed away 24 hours earlier, which, by the way, um, I went to see him after my show Thursday night, and he died within uh, 10 minutes of me being there. So he actually waited for me, oh and I got to God, be right to next be to him. There. Yes, he oh. actually was looking me in the eyes as he passed away, and he wasn't supposed to die then. You know what I mean? Like, he was dying, but... That's I guess, so beautiful. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's it's horrible, and 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 nothing takes that pain away. Mm-hmm. But to be able to be there, oh yeah. is huge. it's a it's it's a gift. It's a gift. Granted, it's a consolation prize, but it's still a gift. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> totally. silver lining, folks. <laughs> Gosh. So anyway, totally. so the next night after my my Friday night show. Ann Carroll, who is one of the artistic directors, she was in the audience that night. She knew what was going on, and um, she was just weeping throughout the whole show. And at the end of the show, you had a standing ovation. It was great. It was a great performance. I felt really great. And for whatever reason, I said to the stage manager, could you turn off the music? And I shared with the audience what had just happened. And I said, you had no idea what I was going through. But because of who you are as people, you allowed Mm. yourselves to be open to hearing this story and being moved by uh, the words I was saying. And it's because of people like you that people like me who are going through really horrible things can actually move on. So I thank you. And it was was so amazing. Was literally everyone crying? Oh, yeah. When, When I said it, women, all the women gasped. And afterwards, you know, in the lobby, people said, I've never had a theatrical experience like that. You know what I mean? Like, yes. That's the stuff. Yeah. Like, that is it. That's so. That's the so, core how of it. did you hand? How did you get through that? And how did you handle the balance between channeling what was actually happening to you into the character and not shutting down or not allowing it to overwhelm you? That's a very difficult balance. It was actually pretty difficult on the Saturday matinee because. <laughs> You know, it just starts creeping in, creeping in, creeping mm-hmm. in. Like, nope, nope, nope. Put a lid on it. Put a lid on it. Mm-hmm. And especially because, you know, it's so impressive that someone can cry during a play. But if it's not at the right time, the audience is like, what is happening? <laughs> someone get her a glass of water. <laughs> like, I'm lost. I feel. And it take and it takes the audience out of it. It's you know so what I mean? True, so it's like, it's trying to rein it in. Just like slowly let it peep out, peep out. And yeah. then, it, you know, especially the, the final moment is where I do just let it go. And um, it was, I don't know, and all that weekend, too, a lot of people who knew what had happened, they came just to see the show to support me. They had no idea what the show was about. And so afterwards <gasps> they said... This is nuts. But yeah, I mean, you know, and crazy circumstance. It's so crazy. I almost feel like I mean, I'm a spiritual person, but I almost feel like you were meant to to play that role. Obviously, you were meant to play that role because because you rocked it. But like also because maybe there was a bit of coping and grief processing through it because I experienced some of that, like Mm -hmm. hearing that character 
talk about the closeness with her father and like seeing them and knowing those two were soulmates Mm -hmm. and that they were so connected. And that's how I felt about my dad. And so there were moments that like brought tears to my eyes, but also joy. And and it allowed me to process my grief, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like a lifelong process. But, you know, I wonder if if maybe you benefited from that at all. Oh, absolutely. And also, too, you know, one of the another part of this show was Sometimes it's hard to love people who are not perfect, you Hmm. know, and especially because there's another relationship with this death row inmate. You know, this little girl actually loves this monster Mm -hmm. and she's able to love him because he he he's not just uh, the murders that he committed. Right. Mm -hmm. He is the music that he listened to and all this kind of stuff. And for me, you know, not that my dad was not a serial killer, but but he was a complicated person. Mm -hmm. And so that also there's something about just that. And all it all we ever need is just a recognition of, yeah, you know what? It's hard to love people when they're not perfect. And especially in today's climate, when you find out these people that you really trusted, you find out they did something heinous. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile? Okay, I still love this person. Mm -hmm. And they did this. So how how does that coexist? How do you reconcile that? It, it That was one of the most fascinating things to me about this script and about the way that you portrayed that because, you know, you believe her and you start realizing life is duality. And with that duality comes come those moments that when we try too hard to make everything black and white, we miss out on the, the realness mm-hmm. of life, which is, you know, my, my father was also definitely not a perfect guy and he was a weirdo. He had like, he had just the weirdest complexes. And no matter what, I loved him deeply and dearly, even when I was like 15 and I was like, I hate you, you know, oh, right. and and all relationships are like that. Everyone you portrayed was so human, like those the, the nuances, the complexities for every single character. You had their mannerisms, their their physicality. You just were able to pop right into that body. Yeah. So what for every single character, did you have to practice like extensively and try to embody them extensively. Yeah. And, and you know, um, to give credit where credit is due, Kevin Gleese, who's the artistic director of Dad's Garage, he does a format called Scratch that he's done for many, many, many years uh, with his partner, Arlen. And uh, one of the things I, we did is, uh, a couple of times we've done versions of his shows of the that sort of format where you have to switch characters very, very quickly. And it is literally you're standing in place as one character. You jump up, spin around, and when you land, you are the other character. And so some of the tools he taught us is like where can that – you need to know where that character lives in your body. So that, those little tools of the trade that I totally used in this script, especially when I – when I'd be in a scene with characters uh, speaking to each other back and forth and being able to uh, very fluidly move from one character to another. I use that a lot in this script. And also, for me, it was finding their voice first Mm. and finding out where they could live in my mouth. And for some of them, you know, for the the death row inmate, especially when I was playing men, finding out where those men could live in my mouth. Like the inmate, he lives in the very front of my mouth. And then my dad lives, you know, sort of in the middle kind of thing. And just finding like that kind of stuff. And, and it's like, can, you know, can I sustain that voice for an extensive period of time? Um, can but, you do a few of the voices for us to show I'm us? trying to think. Oh, um, so, you know, uh. Daddy, he 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 talks like this. He kind of talks like my my stepdad does. 
And the thing is, my stepdad came and saw the play, and he didn't even recognize himself on stage, which makes me think that maybe I wasn't as talented as I thought I was, because that's who that's who I was playing. Or maybe he's not as self-aware. Yeah, right. Yeah, he was sitting <laughs> on the front row too. But you know, Daddy, when he talks, he, he you know he he really puts his head forward. He leads with with his forehead. But then you know the death row inmate. I'm trying to think of how. Oh yeah, he talked like this. You know, he just. He just see he he talked at the front of his mouth, you know. And and uh, sometimes when I thought I was being real clever with how I was making their voices sound, uh, nobody could understand what the heck I was saying. So <laughs> I had to adjust a little bit. But that's how he talks. And your character, your main character. Oh yeah. So um, she she taught this is it's kind of like how I taught when I was a kid, except I my accent was a lot. It was a lot thicker, so I tried to uh, adjust it a little bit. And sometimes, like, when some of my family members would come and see the show, I would, I, you know, i just launch into, you know, seven- or eight-year-old Taylor that used to talk like this, <laughs> had a little bit more drawl to it. Really? <laughs> yes. Let me tell you, I've got a home video of me and my sister fighting over our baby sister, and I say, and I quote, God, Amy, hog the baby, would you? <laughs> It's still on VHS. I need to convert it to digital. <laughs> Coming to theater soon. Coming to theater soon. <laughs> That's amazing. So give us a female character, and then we'll be done. I'm just having too much fun listening to you. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I talk like this. Um, oh, um, let's see. How did my mama talk? Oh, yeah. Um, hush up. Y'all happy with how y'all look all the time? That dog is a child of God, just like you. <laughs> Who? Oh, 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 yeah. The the bully. I can't think of what her name oh, is right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Show and tail. I got the heart of a grown man. I was climbing on the fence post, and uh, I fell, and it pierced my heart. I should have died. <laughs> See, well, that's how she talks. Oh, my gosh. I love it so much. It's Thank so funny. You. I have not done these characters in a long time. So and they just come weird. forward, though. It's I mean, weird. just watching you, I wish I had, like, a Facebook <laughs> Live. Okay. Well, um, you did an amazing job on that show. So thank you for your work on it. I know it takes a whole lot of work. In episode six, I talk about the methods that actors use and the different teachers. And, and we talk about how important it is to break down your background story. And you've just touched on it. Like, mm -hmm. you have just encapsulated why it's necessary. How does acting in a one-person show differ from ensemble acting? You know, talk about staying present, you know, really truly reacting to what you just heard slash said. Yeah. Part of it, too, is I'm, I'm such a micromanager and kind of a control freak, and I really do uh, trust myself more than anyone. Um, and Good. So, so there's some, I don't know, there's some liberty in knowing that I'm responsible for all of it. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And especially with an improv background, no matter what happens, it's all good. Mm -hmm. It's going to be okay. You know what I mean? There are, there are crazy things that happen. There was a three-year-old who fell off. First of all, there's a three-year-old in the audience. Secondly, this three-year-old fell off the ch chairs and was crying <gasps> and, and f at full volume. Or the time that there was a fly that was about 30 pounds heavy <laughs> just flying around my head. And I finally just started attacking it because <laughs> everyone's waiting for me to. Yeah. You know what I mean? But anyway, that's that's... 
Okay, so that was another character. But that's your improv background that really helps. But yeah, like it's it's all going to be okay. So there's something about that, and you know. I really enjoy it. And there there were times that I was lonely, you know. Mm-hmm. There's something very special about uh, a cast and, and what we all go through together and that dressing room talk and that sort of bond. And ensemble acting, there's just things you miss, choices that you don't see coming. But I don't know, there's just something that really keeps you on your toes when you are staying connected to the material and realize you got an hour and a half, you know, mm-hmm. and, and okay, if you take, just, just take it to moment to moment, mm-hmm. it keeps you present. And then, you know, stage plays are sometimes you go off stage or sometimes you come back on, but you are in it. And in fact, too, with this show, uh, we made the choice that I would actually be sitting in the burn pile before the house doors opened. So I actually was sitting on stage as the entire audience came in. So there was no me getting backstage like, yeah, let's get let's get it going. I had to do that while I was on stage watching all these people come in. And a lot of people, most of them didn't know I was in the Mm-mm, burn pile. I didn't see you. Um, but it was kind of nice because I actually got to know them and see who was in the audience, where they're sitting. So I knew who to talk to. How do you choose who to engage with in the audience? It's it's hard because there are always those people that are just so amazing and so welcoming. And you just want to talk to them the whole time because they get it. They're on board. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's people for different reasons, you know, um, as you I just try to connect with every single person, you know, and then you start to find that certain people really react very well to certain parts of the material so you come back to them especially Mm -hmm. if I'm like okay I really need to get worked up when I talk about Teresa who is this friend of mine who is beaten by her grandmother you Mm. know so it's a very a very moving part of the script so Mm. there are times if I'm not there I know I can look at that woman on the second row who just can't stop crying I look at her I got you and then I get back in it you know what I mean Mm -hmm. it's like I steal from them steal from the audience. You energy thief. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we've talked about how you have done improv acting, voice acting, dramatic work, stage acting, and and on-camera work, uh, which is so impressive to me. Is there one character that you have always dreamed of portraying? Yes. Um, You know, I wish I was more well-read with plays, but uh, I always wanted to play Martha from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, but it's going to be a hot minute before I can play Mm. her for, you know, logistical reasons. (laughs) She's older. I'm I'm in my early 20s. (laughs) I'm not in my early 20s. I'm not. Anyway, but uh, I've always wanted to play her. I saw uh, a stage production of it in L.A., actually, and Kathleen Turner played Martha, Mm. and she... I just that play it just it just it it really screwed me up it messed me up so so badly she is so vicious Mm -hmm. but to have the challenge of playing a female character who is so vicious but you have to have empathy for her you have to even Mm -hmm. if it's just for a brief moment to play characters that are you know three-dimensional you know that's what people want to see exactly you know what i mean like and she is she's complex just like the rest of us but man that is one of my favorite works oh Um, my god it just really it really really messed me up a little bit of a uh, a tough question here is the fact that, and I'd like to address this, especially with the inspiration this week, the entertainment industry is one of those industries where there's been a lot 
of truth coming forward about, as you put it, the heinous, the heinousness um, of some people's behavior and the way that women are treated. I mean, I would say a few years ago it was coming out that women are paid so unfairly compared to men in the industry. And now we're realizing that along with that, women are being sexually harassed, bullied, uh, abused in multiple ways. So as a woman in the entertainment industry, what has it been like for you to see this unfold? And and can you relate to it? And how does it feel? Uh, as far as unfolding, it's, you know, it's about damn time, you know, and it and it's really it's really, really hard. Right. Because <clears throat> men and women, right, as performers, we are literally selling our bodies. You know what I mean? Now, granted, there's a brain inside that body. Right. But this is the product. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's. It's really, really tricky, and especially in my early 20s, thank God, when I would go to industry parties that, you know, when you're trying to get in with so-and-so director or whatever, and, and, you know, as much as I try to pretend like I'm so strong and I, you know, if I I was in that situation, I can think of plenty of situations where I just wasn't chosen to be the girl that so-and-so super famous so-and-so decided to take back into a room somewhere. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because it's like you want their attention so badly that your brain gets so screwed up. You'll take any attention. But then you realize, like, what am I going to do when I... They decide, okay, yeah, yeah, you you seem you seem like a good flavor for tonight. Let's Oof, go, you know that yeah. kind of stuff. So there's that, right? It's the power dynamic. And then on film sets, um, there is a tendency, in my experience, when I would play characters who were scantily clad yeah. on a set, that people assume that's who you are. Mm-hmm. Or if you play a character, and especially in improv, I choose to play a character that's sexy or says a lot of vulgar sort of things. That doesn't mean that's who I am right. off stage. And there's there's a time, especially on um, short films or non-union films back in the day. And this is L.A. So who, everything's great now. Everything's great. Right to work today. Way to go, Georgia. <laughs> but um, in, in California, I'd be in a lot of film sets where there are... There's not a lot of professionalism. So you'd have crew people saying these things to you while you're on the set in between takes. And if you say anything as a woman, right, you're thinking, what is wrong with me? Why am I not being like, you know, screw you and, and, and head out the door? But instead you you laugh uncomfortably or you mm-hmm. act like you're it's it's totally fine. You know what I mean? Yep. But it's not fine. But you don't know how to. It's taken you so long just to get to this crappy non-union unpaid film that will never go anywhere. It's taken you so long just to get there that if you say anything. They're going to be one of those women, and they're going to move on to someone yes. else. So that's the thing. Now, I hope now I think very differently. But in my early twenties, trying mm-hmm. to do, trying to get just a nugget out in LA. Oh my gosh! Like exactly, it's really, really scary, and it's super tricky, and it's not black and white either. Mm-hmm. It is very, it is incredibly complicated. You've you've broken it down perfectly, just like transporting us to what it feels like to be in those situations. And the power dynamics are intense. So thank you for engaging in this conversation with me. I think these conversations should happen more and more. And so, Taylor, you're lovely. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my God. Is she not amazing? That That's it. That's all I got. And, you know, she's probably really embarrassed by me right now. Taylor was incredible. And this might be a longer episode because I couldn't stop talking to Taylor. 
But that's cool. And guess what? This week, she is our mystery guest because she doesn't have any links for us. Honestly, I don't even think she exists. I'm, I think I was talking to myself this whole time. I'm the, I'm the talented voice actor. <laughs> Anyway, guys, thank you for joining me for yet another week of The Cultured Podcast. And you know how much I love you and how much I appreciate you guys for getting cultured with us every single week. And don't forget that if you want to submit your inspiration to me, I might feature you at the beginning of an episode. So just email me at info at culturedpodcast.com or post it on Instagram and tag at Cultured Podcast. Put it on Twitter. Send a carrier pigeon. Smoke signals are a little bit too vague, um, but get it to me somehow. I would love to feature you on the Cultured Podcast. And as always, y'all, keep it classy. Keep it curious. Keep it cultured. Michelle Corey. Sean Powers is our producer. David Markowitz is our executive producer. The Cultured Podcast is a production of Zero Mile Media, made with love in Atlanta. You can listen to The Cultured Podcast on culturedpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and anywhere podcasts are found. <laughs>